Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with President Biden's call to remove Putin, remarking in a fiery speech, for God's sake, this man cannot remain in power. We will assess the implications of a Russian general's remarks, suggesting that Russia's main objective is not Kiev, but to liberate the Donbass. Joining us is Michael Kimmage, a professor of history and department chair at the Catholic University of America, chair of the Kennan Institute Advisory Council and fellow at the German Marshall Fund. From 2014 to 2017, he served on the Secretary's Policy Planning Staff at the United States Department of State, where he held the Russia-Ukraine portfolio. His latest book is The Abandonment of the West, the history of an idea in American foreign policy, and we'll discuss the likelihood of the war in Ukraine continuing for months, if not years. Then we'll look into the Orwellian grip on information Putin is imposing as his propaganda machinery pumps out patriotic appeals and ludicrous lies to cover up a mounting death toll and a stalled invasion referred to as a special military operation. Otherwise, 15 years in jail awaits those who describe it otherwise. Joining us is Catherine Stoner, Director of the Mossbacher Center on Democracy Development and the Rule of Law and a Professor of Political Science at Stanford University. She is the co-author of Transitions to Democracy, a Comparative Perspective, and is the author of Resisting the State, Reform and Retrenchment in Post-Soviet Russia, and her latest book is Russia Resurrected, Its Power and Purpose in a New Global Order. Then finally, we'll look into calls for Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas to recuse himself from cases related to the January 6th insurrection, following remarks by his wife revealing that she was an ardent supporter of the insurrection and was involved in attempts to overturn the election results to keep Trump in power. Joining us is Leah Littman, Assistant Professor of Law at the University of Michigan, who clerked for the Honorable Jeffrey Sutton of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit and Justice Anthony Kennedy of the United States Supreme Court and is now a regular contributor to the Take Care blog and the co-host and creator of Strict Scrutiny, a podcast about the U.S. Supreme Court. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Michael Kimmage, who's a professor of history and department chair at the Catholic University of America and chair of the Kennan Institute Advisory Council and a fellow with the German Marshall Fund. From 2014 to 2017, he served on the Secretary's Policy Planning Staff at the United States Department of State, where he held the Russia-Ukraine portfolio. His latest book is The Abandonment of the West, The History of an Idea in American Foreign Policy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Kimmage. Thank you so much for having me. So much is being made of the briefing on Friday by the first Deputy Chief of Russia's General Staff, Colonel General Sergei Rutskoy, 
who uh, said that the combat potential of the armed forces of Ukraine has been significantly reduced, allowing us, I emphasize again, to focus the main efforts on achieving the main goal, the liberation of Donbass. And then he went on to say the public and individual experts are wondering why what we are doing in the areas of the blockaded Ukrainian cities. These actions are carried out with the aim of causing such damage to military infrastructure, equipment, personnel of the armed forces of Ukraine, and the results of which allow us not only to tie down their forces and prevent them from strengthening a grouping in the Donbass, but also will not allow them to do this until the Russian army completely liberates the territory of the DPR and the LN, uh, meaning the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics. So is that an admission that the ambition of capturing and, and occupying Ukraine has failed, or is there more to come from the Russian military? Well, it's, 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 it's truly difficult to read. Uh, the operation began, the war began, uh, in Putin's terms, as a special military operation to uh, acknowledge the independence of the DNR and the LNR. So rhetorically, it can be put back at that uh, initial war aim, but it's obviously very clear uh, that the initial hope of Putin was to topple the Ukrainian government and perhaps to partition the country. I think there's no way that Putin, Putin can achieve that goal at this stage. Uh, and I would imagine that this statement is something of a veiled acknowledgement uh, of that. But you had a missile strike in Lviv in western Ukraine yesterday. Uh, and I think that there's no part of Ukraine at the moment that's safe. Uh, and it's also very possible that this uh, announcement is uh, misinformation or intended to confuse the Ukrainian military, that there could be a strike around Kiev or to the West. Uh, so, you know, it's it's uh, it's a military effort that's not going well for Russia. They have to recalibrate. I think that this, this set of announcements is a recalibration, but it doesn't really point in any very clear direction. So when the U.S. Army General Kevin Ryan says that, and he was a military attaché in uh, Moscow, that Putin will soon have no choice but to stop his invasion of Ukraine. It's not because he wants to halt his military operation. It's because he has no choice. Putin has basically reached the capacity of what his military can do for him in Ukraine. Do you go along with that assessment? Not necessarily. I think that Russia has some escalatory possibilities. They can certainly use the same amount of air power, if not more. You know, missile strikes are well within their capacity. Uh, they can dig in uh, in many parts of Ukraine, including around Kiev, and not necessarily advance, but continue to occupy territory. And you've seen a lot of back and forth and a lot of fluidity in the south and some Russian gains over the last couple of days uh, in uh, in the south and also uh, in the east. So the idea that Putin is at the end of his tether or that he has no further options, that seems uh, very much exaggerated to me. So President Biden in Poland on Saturday said something that's gotten a lot of headlines around the world, and it's apparently rattled the Kremlin. He said, for God's sake, this man, meaning Putin, this man cannot remain in power. He went on to say that we need to be clear-eyed. This battle will not be won in days or months. We need to steer ourselves for the long fight ahead. So President Biden is more or less saying what you're saying. I believe so. I think that uh, uh, the the second part of his statement about the longevity of the conflict uh, is very reasonable and is a wise thing to impress upon Polish audiences and U.S. audiences, international audiences. Of course, the first part of the statement is quite possibly a gaffe in the manner of Joe Biden. The White House did walk it back uh, almost immediately 
but that may prove to be the most memorable statement of uh, of Biden's speech in Warsaw. Well, he also on Saturday called Putin a butcher after meeting with some Ukrainian refugees at a food kitchen in Poland. So I'm sure that also uh, <laughs> was not greeted in the Kremlin. Given the statements that uh, President Biden has made, do you think that Putin cares about being ostracized? I don't think he cares about being ostracized, but he's trying to piece together what American intentions are. And I think up until Biden's speech in Warsaw on Saturday, there was a fair amount of message discipline from President Biden. And this is not a fight that NATO was going to enter directly. You're not going to see U.S. troops on Ukrainian soil. Uh, and it's really about Ukrainian sovereignty and autonomy. The regime change statement by Biden alters that somewhat. And so I suppose Putin has to figure out how sincere uh, and how meaningful that is. I think it's regrettable that Biden has muddled his his message to the degree that he has in the last 48 hours. But he's been under some criticism that the U.S. and NATO have been for the longest time saying what they can't do, like no-fly zones, not handing over the Polish MiG-29s, etc., and that this has emboldened Putin. Do you go along with that? I don't. I think that, uh, obviously, you know, Biden has to create a compelling narrative uh, of the politics of this situation, and I think he needs to tally up uh, for many different audiences, the amount of uh, action that the U.S. has taken so far, because it's really quite formidable. You have uh, enormous expenditures of aid, humanitarian and otherwise, for uh, for Ukraine, and you have a military assistance effort that's among the largest um, that the U.S. is engaged in anywhere that are encompassing ammunition uh, and armaments, and in many case, cases, very significant, sophisticated armaments, uh, close to air defense systems, Stinger missiles, javelins, uh, etc. So the idea that Biden is not doing enough, that's in the eye of the beholder, but he's certainly doing a great deal, uh, and he should be enumerating that uh, as much as he can. And again, I'm speaking with Michael Kimmage, who's a professor of history and department chair at the Catholic University of America and chair of the Kennan Institute Advisory Council and a fellow at the German Marshall Fund from 2014 to 2017. He served on the Secretary's Policy Planning Staff at the United States Department of State, where he held the Russia-Ukraine portfolio. And his latest book is The Abandonment of the West, The History of an Idea in American Foreign Policy. Well, he did seem to really get quite passionate and his voice was rising when he said that that Russia better not go after one inch of NATO territory, not one inch. We have a sacred duty under Article 5 uh, to defend NATO countries. Attack on one is an attack on all. I've never heard him say anything quite so strongly as that. So there's two schools of thoughts about this, that Putin has these grand ambitions of recreating the Soviet Union or the, even the Tsarist Empire. There's another possibility that this is a, a guy that runs a kleptocracy, regulates a, the Siloviki and a bunch of uh, oligarchs, stealing the country blind, and they're basically, you know, looking over their shoulder all the time and they don't have any grand plans except to stay in power. Where would you come down between those two scenarios? Well, I think that had the war gone better for Russia, as Putin had hoped, uh, had they within a couple of days decapitated the Ukrainian government and moved their armies across the territory of Ukraine, you could imagine a scenario in which a reconstitution of the Russian Empire or of the Soviet Union uh, is at least plausible to the Kremlin. So I think on the level of ambition, that that ambition is certainly there. The capacities are considerably less. You see how badly the war has gone 
for Russia. Uh, they have a hard time holding territory in some cases, and they've conquered much less of the country than they expected to. So I think at the moment, and for the foreseeable future, the idea that Russia could proceed from Ukraine to an attack on the Baltics or on Poland or, or elsewhere is just fanciful. I mean, it's not within the range of the possible for Putin. So whatever his dreams were at the beginning of this war, they've been severely cut down to size. But isn't it also possible that Putin has, you know, there's a tradition, I guess, maybe that's not the right description, but there's certainly this idea of the Potemkin village, and much of the Soviet Union was window dressing. And you get the feeling that the Russian military might well be a Potemkin village. And of course, a part of it, I think, is just the corruption of having this kleptocracy. I mean, Putin's cook, Prigozhin, who runs the Wagner mercenary outfit, is also given the portfolio of feeding the troops. Well, he pockets half the money, doesn't he? I yeah. mean, they're not getting fed. Well, I think you see two things that are really uh, debits on the side of the Russian military. First and foremost, I would say, is that they pursued a strategy in Ukraine that was uh, science fiction at best, that was incredibly ambitious, that was based on a faulty reading of Ukrainian politics. They thought it was a house of cards that they could push the country over. Uh, and now they're the victims of this foolish uh, and badly conceived plan. And then within that, it's all of the things that you're mentioning. There are problems of logistics, there are problems of supply, there are problems of equipment that do stem from corruption in the Russian military. And you could add even a third problem, which is the very low morale uh, of Russian soldiers, that they uh, were not told about this mission, they're not well informed. I think a lot of them don't like the mission of fighting uh, in Ukraine. So all of these combine to uh, minimize the effectiveness of the Russian military. You know, that said, just for balance, Russia still uh, possesses the biggest conventional army in Europe, and of course it remains a nuclear power. So Potemkin village perhaps, but uh, there are other aspects of Russian military power that are objective, real, and quite worrisome. So does that mean then that Putin may be bogged down, but he's certainly not giving up the fight and he's turning his attention? If, if these reports are true that a lot of his soldiers are deployed around Kiev are, are digging in and laying mines in defensive positions, that he's just going to pound the civilian infrastructure with artillery and terrorize the, the people into surrender? Is that the next stage? I think he has to know that he really can't terrorize the people of Ukraine into surrender, that Zelensky has shown himself to be much stronger than that, and the Ukrainian people have as well. I think maybe more accurate might be a description of the war at this stage as a war of attrition, which means that you have to battle for time, uh, and you make it a question of degrading the infrastructure and the capacities of the other side. And so how long can Ukraine hold out if this becomes a two, three, four-year war you know, there's the economics of it, there's supply and logistics questions and morale that will be factors on the Ukrainian side, but of course there are factors on the Russian side too. So it's anybody's guess at the moment who benefits from a war of attrition, but that seems the best of the alternatives that Russia has because a war of conquest by now is out of reach for them. But if you're talking in a two to three year time frame, what within a couple of years, the Europeans, West Europeans have said they're going to get off Russian gas and oil the Russian economy would be devastated by then. I don't think China's going to step into the breach. Most of the oil and gas infrastructure heads west from Siberia, not much heading east into China. So 
can the Russian economy survive <laughs> two years, maybe two, two or three months? I mean, it's really being hit pretty hard, isn't it? Well, those are excellent questions. I mean, you have a, now a kind of repression uh, in Russia that you haven't seen, a degree of repression that you haven't seen so far. So, of course, that could misfire, but it could also squelch dissent. Russia has become uh, a dictatorship, and we see dictatorships like North Korea and others that are able to hang on for quite a long time. And I think in the Russian calculus, and this could well be proven wrong, they feel that they have two basic options when it comes to sanctions and to their economy, that there's the whole range of countries, and there are many of them that are not a part of the sanctions regime. You might mention India here uh, as an important market for Russian commodities. Uh, and at the same time, I think it's the Russian calculus that uh, the West over time may grow tired of sanctions. You may see disunity. Uh, if this is a two, three year conflict, some of the intense emotions that have been there at the beginning may start to dissipate and Russia can start to work with a few partners in the West. I think that that's probably not going to be the case, but I wouldn't be surprised if Putin was thinking in those terms. Uh, he's overestimated himself at every turn uh, of this war, so he may be overestimating his ability to survive sanctions and sort of survive for the long term. Well, I th have a feeling, and it's just because what you see on television is so horrifying, that the world is generally outraged, at least most of the world, and it's hard to understand uh, the position of India, although they do get a lot of their military equipment from Russia. But I think there's a genuine outrage throughout the world, and particularly in Western Europe. I think the Europeans are serious, aren't they, about not financing Putin anymore, and they're, they're going to go cold turkey on, on Russian gas as quickly as possible. I think that's absolutely correct uh, as an assessment. Uh, you know, there too, there are certain questions uh, of time, uh, and whether Putin can create alternatives to that is, 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 is anybody's guess. I think it's going to be a difficult project. I mean, I think Putin looks back to 2014, which is a much more moderate conflict with the West and, and says that, well, they sanctioned us then and we found ways to work around it and alternative markets. And I think he believes that he can do the same thing. I think he believes he can do the same thing now. But uh, it's uh, it's an interesting example at the moment of Putin who's closing off all kinds of options, both for his society, for his economy, uh, and really for his own tenure as Russian president. I mean, it's a, it's something of a suicidal rhythm that he's entering into politically. Uh, and the question is whether it's a slow suicide or it's a, a fast suicide. Uh, and, you know, the the breaking of relations with the West is a big part of that uh, of that suicidal mission at this point. It's, it's extraordinary to watch a leader of Putin's longevity uh, proceed in such a foolish uh, set of decisions as he's making at the moment. And the idea of Russia becoming North Korea, obviously the North Koreans have been in this one family communist dynasty and they've been brainwashed from cradle to grave but the Russians at least have had a taste of freedom and some media diversity now Putin is clearly cracking down in a totally Orwellian way even um, young Russians are being stopped in the streets by the Putin's police and having their smartphones checked to see whether they're getting unauthorized information and news so it's not going to be that easy to turn Russia into North Korea, is it? Or is it? Or a better question, perhaps, is what tools, what soft power tools does the United States have to get the true story into the Russian people? Those tools are very limited, uh, and I think that's one of the reasons that Biden made a mistake with the statement he made 
in Warsaw on Saturday about uh, Putin effectively having to to go. Uh, you know, there are ways in which through social media, uh, Western narratives and, and, and objective information about the war in Ukraine will trickle in. Russians are in touch by telephone, text message, email with the outside world. Uh, all of that uh, is the case. But so far, Putin has shown himself to be brutally effective at preventing any kind of alternative to his rule from materializing, any kind of alternative political movement. And of course, we all know about Navalny, who's in prison uh, at the moment. Uh, and that's very much the situation now. So there may be rising discontent. I'm sure Russians are better informed than their government would like them to be. But if they can translate that into a political movement, into an alternative to Putin, they're far from being there at the moment. So, you know, there too, as with many of the things we've been discussing, it's a matter of time. You know, Putin will fail in this endeavor because it's based on lies and because it's a criminal war. But it may, again, take Russians years to recognize that. And, and more than anything, it may take them years to act on that uh, on that situation. Well, Marco Kimmich, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you so much for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Michael Kimmage, who's a professor of history and department chair at the Catholic University of America and chair of the Cannon Institute Advisory Council and a fellow at the German Marshall Fund. And from 2014 to 2017, he served on the Secretary's Policy Planning Staff at the United States Department of State, where he held the Russia-Ukraine portfolio. And his latest book is The Abandonment of the West, The History of an Idea in American Foreign Policy. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into the Orwellian grip on information Putin is imposing as his propaganda machinery pumps out patriotic appeals and ludicrous lies to cover up a mounting death toll from a stalled invasion. Tonight two grain ships will pull back to their ports Depleted of everything that shoots flames and reports And in the morning the shells will wash up on the shore And the mighty of earth will have no other recourse But to shiver and shake Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Catherine Stoner, who is the director of the Mossbacker Center on Democracy Development and the Rule of Law, and a professor of political science at Stanford University. She's the co-author of Transitions to Democracy, A Comparative Perspective, and is the author of Resisting the State, Reform and Retrenchment in Post-Soviet Russia. And her latest book is Russia Resurrected, Its Power and Purpose in a New Global Order. Welcome to Background Briefing, Catherine Stoner. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And what did you make of this impassioned speech that President Biden made in Warsaw, Poland yesterday, where he, I think maybe went off, went off script. He said, for God's sake, talking about Putin, for God's sake, this man cannot remain in power. They've walked it back a bit, but is that going to work with Putin? I don't know if it'll work with him or, or not. Uh, I don't think it's important if it, if it does, obviously, uh, um, an, ad, an admonition by, uh, by Joe Biden to you know, leave power is going to have no uh, input or influence on whether or not Putin actually does leave power. Um, I'm not sure he went off script necessarily because uh, everyone's talking about what he said. And uh, it is, it is 
uh, perhaps partial solution to the problem now, although I think even if if Putin exited the scene, there are enough people behind him uh, who who could conceivably just continue this policy, um, which would be the problem, right? This might be bigger than than just him, um, although it doesn't look that way at the moment. Well, if he were to leave power, it would be because the war is not going well, surely. Um, it could be that. Uh, it could also be that he's he's ill, right? There are many ways that dictators leave power. Uh, you're, you're hypothesizing in that question that there would be some sort of elite coup uh, against him, um, I'm guess, I, I think. Uh, and that's possible. It doesn't seem very likely right now because there are two sets of elites, um, really, that he's having to deal with. They're both under sanction. One is the the so-called oligarchs of the 1990s, these uh, these sort of very rich men who are dependent on him for retaining their, their property. They, some of them own some valuable properties uh, and businesses in uh, the energy sector or the aluminum sector. Then the other group is, is really close to him from his days in what was then the KGB um, and, you know, don't care if they never leave Russia again. And have views that are that are close to him. One of them is Sergei Shoigu, for example, the defense minister. Um, so I think there's a struggle between those groups, um, and uh, it does it doesn't look as though Putin's you know to the extent we know anything it doesn't look like Putin's seat is uh, as president is in danger at this point, and we're not seeing tremendously large demonstrations. Another way that dictators fall right out on the streets. Um, because uh, there's there are very severe penalties for that now in Russia, which is uh, which has happened over the last couple of years and in the last couple of months, of course, intensifying in, in terms of what the penalties are for demonstrating or even, in fact, saying the word war. So what are you hearing from your contacts in Russia in the sense that I'm hearing that, in fact, there's a kind of patriotic fervor going on, whipped up by state media, which Putin controls. And as you pointed out, there isn't any alternative media left. It's becoming increasingly Orwellian there. And I guess the only comparison we could make in America would be that if all we had in America in terms of our media was Fox News, I mean, that's the situation now. Is it working? Is it? Are they going through a period similar to what we had here with the Iraq war, with shock and awe, and everybody was all gung-ho? Well, it's not clear, right? Because uh, because we don't have independent polling agencies really out there asking those direct questions. Um, what what we know is, as you mentioned, information uh, is, is controlled. If you have um, a VPN, you can get alternative sources of, of information, of course, by getting around internet controls, which Russia had not had before. Um, state television, it's um, it's an alternate universe. I, I spent some time watching state TV over the last week or so, Russian state TV, just to, to see what the message is, was. And yeah, it's an alternate universe. So then there's a question of how, how much do uh, people believe this? And we don't know, is the simple answer. If you judge by protests on the street, then it looks like uh, they believe it. Um, but if you, um, uh, you know, we can't we can't see public opinion uh, because that, that those results are not being released 
at the moment, the the results that we have seen from the state from a, a state um, agency would seem to indicate that that support's pretty high, over 60, 70 percent. Um, but um, they, they, you know, think a thinking person would wonder why it is that uh, all of this uh, that there's effectively martial law and why the the country is being sanctioned by almost every other uh, uh, country around every country in Europe, why they can't travel anymore. Um, it's just, and, and why McDonald's have closed down. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's uh, just, and why you can't, you know, get a new iPhone. Uh, it's just what conclusions they draw from that. Um, and um, how impatient people become uh, with what's happening in, in the economy. Um, because the sanctions are hitting the economy pretty pretty badly, and if somebody planned a vacation in, let's say, Turkey or uh, you know Europe this summer, well, they're not going. Um, so how that plays out, um, we're, it, it's not clear. Um, but I think probably a, a, an elite um, coup is the most likely possibility. Uh, but that doesn't look so likely at the moment. We can't tell. Is the bottom line. And again, I'm speaking with Catherine Stoner, who is the director of the Mossbacher Center on Democracy and Development and the Rule of Law and a professor of political science at Stanford University. She's the co-author of Transitions to Democracy, A Comparative Perspective, and is the author of Resisting the State, Reform and Retrenchment in Post-Soviet Russia. And her latest book is Russia Resurrected, Its Power and Purpose in a New Global Order. So... We've heard from, I mentioned uh, President Biden in, on Saturday in Poland giving a fairly passionate speech and a huge endorsement of NATO warning Putin not to move one inch on any NATO country, reminding him about the Article 5 commitments, which Biden said are sacred. So that message, I mean, previous message, there's been some criticism that Biden's been telling the, the world and Putin what we can't do and Ukraine. We can't uh, have a no-fly zone and we can't allow the MiG-29s from Poland in. But And some people have suggested that's emboldened Putin. But the last we've heard from Putin was on Friday where he was doing a video conference with the Russian cultural figures where he said, I mean, it's a pretty off the wall, he said, the Harry Potter author J.K. Rowling has recently been cancelled because she did not please the fans of the so-called gender freedoms. And then he went on to say, Today they are trying to cancel a whole 1,000-year-old country, our people. I'm talking about the increasing discrimination of everything related to Russia, about this trend which is unfolding in a number of Western states. So... Grievance is not unusual for him, but what do you think's going on in, in in his mind? Yeah, so I mean, even dictators have have uh, to have some degree of popular support, right? Or have people buy the message. And so the message here is: look, uh, there is a war um, against Russia as a culture, as a civilization, and um, we are we are the victims of uh, an overly permissive, liberal, small liberal Western culture. Um, and uh, just, you know, like this beloved uh, children's author, we are being canceled. Um, and uh, this is, of course, for his domestic audience. And, and of course, it's not true. Uh, Russia is, is not being canceled. Um, he's being sanctioned 
or uh, uh, the actions of his government. Uh, and, and, you know, getting back to Biden's speech, Biden was trying to speak very directly to uh, the Russian people and saying, you know, uh, this, our fight is not with you. We don't dislike the Russian people, but the regime that you have in charge uh, is doing you a tremendous disservice. And all of the gains of the last 30 years are being wiped out because of the obsession of this little group led by Vladimir Putin. Um, and so I think that's what he meant, by the way, when he said uh, this guy can't can't stay in office was come on, people, um, you know, uh, throw him out. Whether that was the wrong thing to say or the right thing to say, I don't know. But I think he's saying what a lot of a lot of people are thinking in, in the right. world. But is that message getting through? I mean, what kind of soft power tools does the U.S. have to pierce that bubble of delusion in Russia where all you have is propaganda from state media right so that's not all you have if you're you know 18 to 34 um and we know from previous uh independent um surveys that were done last summer for example we're getting as high as 43 percent of 18 to 24 year olds saying they want to leave russia permanently that is emigrate so i'll say that again 43 percent in june of last year saying that and then in uh, the, the 25 to 34 age category, it's another 33% of them saying they want to immigrate permanently. So that's, that's a problem for Putin. So even if right now, now that hasn't, that, that's even before this, right, and all the sanctions. And those, what do those people care about? They care about uh, Netflix, uh, getting their um, iPhones, getting the newest uh, technology, integrating. And they have not, known the 1990s when you know things were difficult in, in russia economically as they transited from the communist system and um they they weren't prepared for this and so let's see over time and it'll take a little more time um what happens and if those people begin to come out on the street in in big numbers um obviously putin's been preparing for this he's got a national guard he's got special forces troops out arriving at protests even before protesters these days and he's put in jail uh people like alexei navalny and his, his organization has been outlawed there who could organize such things but you know if we think of other contexts in there there are other you know in in similar circumstances other you know opposition leaders could arise right and so we could yet see big street protests as the reality of these sanctions uh uh, really set in for people who are not uh, accustomed to uh, to having, um, you know, the West in particular turn their backs on them this way and don't want it. And for what? Right. Well, he did in his video conference with these cultural figures in Russia on Friday. He also, again, lied. That's hardly anything new. But he did say Tchaikovsky, Shostakovich and Rachmaninoff are excluded from posters. Russian writers and their books are banned. The last time such a massive campaign to destroy unfavorable literature was carried out by the Nazis in Germany almost 90 years ago. So that's his, that he's, that's his favorite touchstone, the Nazis, right? The, the Ukraine's full of Nazis. But he is telling the Russian people, and at least those that listen to him, a uh, complete lie there. I mean, do you think Biden's doing enough, though, to make it clear that we don't have a problem with the Russian people. It's this one man 
and history is full of one-man dictatorships causing enormous grief. Yeah, so, you know, it's not up to just Biden, right? Um, I, I think there, there are uh, uh, Ukrainians as well pointing this out and uh, have, you know, sophisticated um, uh, computer hacking going on to try and flash messages to, inside Russia, um, uh, for example, it, it, it demonstrating what's going on in Ukraine. Uh, you know, there were, I think it started a couple of weeks ago, um, uh, putting comments on uh, the Yelp reviews of restaurants um, that were not actually reviews of the restaurants, but rather, you know, key, they're targeting, uh, this is a war, they're targeting Ukrainian civilians um, in, in actual Yelp reviews in, instead of the reviews themselves. Um, and there are other ways they're trying to get the message through um, as well. But we've also seen within the military, right? And, and again, it's not, you know, it wasn't just uh, Hitler necessarily who, of course, um, you know, caused World War II. There were other things too, but without Hitler, things would have gone differently. So without Putin, things would likely go differently. And so getting that message through to average Russians who might, and to members of the Russian military, and we're starting to see some breaking in the ranks there as well um, of, uh, of uh, you know, members of particular defense units who have said, I'm not going to go there or I'm not going to shoot them. Um, and we may see more of this over time. Um, so I think it's, it's up to, you know, the world basically to continue uh, to isolate Russia because of the poor decisions its government has made. And then the Russian people themselves must take responsibility for that fact and, and for the government they have. And that's the difficulty, I think. So just in the last minute then, Catherine Stoner, President Biden uh, on Saturday in Poland met with Ukraine's foreign minister and its defense minister. How long can they hold out the Ukrainians? I mean, they're getting a lot of uh, military equipment, but it came late and not enough time to train people in. And we recall President Trump held up the Javelin missiles in order to get dirt on Biden. That's some rather sad history there. What's your sense of how long they can hold out? Because that seems to be the only hope that the Ukrainians can inflict enough damage on the Russian military that Putin will cry uncle. So, um, well, it depends on what, what you think the goals are. So uh, um, they did get the Javelins in the end uh, from Trump. So that, that you know, and they, they are still getting them. Um, I know they still want a no-fly zone. And talking to a very good friend of mine who was very high up in the Russian in the Ukrainian government a, a few years ago, I uh, spoke to him on Thursday morning. Um, he, he described it as it's like Pearl Harbor every day. Uh, Russia um, is doesn't have you know unlimited missiles. It's already used a thousand, um, but um, they they being the Ukrainians want these um, aircraft bombers. Um, and anti-aircraft missile systems because he said two days of bombing could turn Kiev into Aleppo. So referring to Syria there. Um, so, you know, this is a very big country. It's the biggest country in Europe. Um, bigger, uh, the, you know, the only, the only country that you could count as partially European is Russia itself um, beyond that. And then they want NATO's eyes in the sky and the information um, of, of where Russian aircraft are to be able to shoot them down with anti-aircraft systems. And so they're, they're, they, you know, they think they can hold out for a few more weeks, but um, ideally 
that that's what they'd like NATO forces to shoot down um, targets in the sky. Um, otherwise, you know, they could dis- they they could uh, the Russian side that is uh, destroy Kiev in in two or so um, days, uh, and then he says they'll move on to capture Moldova right there on the western border of uh, of uh, Ukraine, uh, sandwiched between Romania and Ukraine, and then they'll go on to Georgia and they'll just keep going is is uh, what he's saying. So um, they'll fight on to the death till the very last Ukrainian. Um, and, uh, you know, even should Russia, uh, Russian forces actually take Kiev in the end, um, you know, it'll become guerrilla warfare on the streets and it'll look a lot like Lebanon, for example, in, in the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, and this will be right in the heart of Europe uh, and tremendously destabilizing if, uh, if this conflict isn't brought to an end relatively soon. Well, Catherine Stoner, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Catherine Stone, who's the director of the Mossbacher Center on Democracy and Development and the Rule of Law and a professor of political science at Stanford University. She's the co-author of Transitions to Democracy, a Comparative Perspective, and the author of Resisting the State, Reform and Retrenchment in Post-Soviet Russia. And her latest book is Russia Resurrected, Its Power and Purpose in a New Global Order. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into calls for Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas to accuse himself from cases related to the January 6th insurrection following remarks by his wife, revealing that she was an ardent supporter of the insurrection and was involved in attempts to overturn the election results to keep Trump in power. I know it's true. Oh, so true. Because I saw it. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Leah Littman, who's an assistant professor of law at the University of Michigan, who teaches and writes on constitutional law, federal post-conviction review, and federal sentencing. She clerked for the Honorable Jeffrey Sutton of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit and Justice Anthony Kennedy of the United States Supreme Court, and is now a regular contributor to the Take Care blog and the co-host and creator of Strict Scrutiny, a podcast about the U.S. Supreme Court. Welcome to Background Briefing, Leah Littman. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And there's an explosive story in the Washington Post by Bob Woodward and Robert Costa. Apparently, they've gotten hold of the text messages that former Chief of Staff Mark Meadows handed over to the January 6th committee and investigating the insurrection. There are 29 messages in all between Virginia Thomas, the wife of the Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, and this, these messages went back and forth at the time when Trump and uh, the people around him were trying to get the Supreme Court to negate Biden's victory. So they're f- very significant in that regard. Let me just read one where on November the 10th, after Biden had been declared the winner by the news organizations, Ginny Thomas wrote to Meadows, Help this great president stand firm, Mark. You are the leader with him. 
who was standing for America's constitutional governance at a precipice. The majority knows Biden and the left is attempting the greatest heist in our history. So that's an extraordinary mindset, isn't it? And uh, what do you make of it? There's so much that is so utterly shocking about the text messages that were revealed. I will just start with something you alluded to, which is Ginny Thomas was texting Mark Meadows, um, including about the plans to have Vice President Pence try to overturn the results of the election on January 6th. That's extremely significant because there's a congressional committee that is investigating the events of and leading up to January 6th. And that congressional committee sought the records, you know, that these included these text messages. And President Trump challenged whether the congressional committee could obtain these materials. In that case, President Trump's challenge to the congressional committee's ability to receive this information went up to the Supreme Court. The only justice on the Supreme Court that would have heard this challenge was Justice Thomas. And we now know that it is possible that some of the materials related to January 6th could implicate Justice Thomas's wife and that Justice Thomas's wife has a potential interest in the outcome of that case. It is beyond inappropriate. It is extremely unethical for a justice to be sitting in and deciding a case in which their spouse has such a clear potential interest. Um, other of the text messages allude to communications that Jenny Thomas had with Jared Kushner. Um, and so it seems like Justice Thomas's wife is potentially implicated and involved in one of the cases that Justice Thomas sat on and cast a vote in. Well, at the very least, it shows that Virginia Thomas had a direct line into the very top echelons of the White House. But Meadows and her, in many of their exchanges, sort of reveal this kind of religiosity, which in Meadows' case on, on November the 24th, he wrote to Virginia Thomas saying that this is a fight of good versus evil. Evil always looks like the victor until the king of kings triumphs. Do not grow weary in well-doing. The fight continues. I have staked my career on it. Well, at least my time in D.C. on it. And then Virginia Thomas replied to him, Thank you. Needed that. This plus a conversation with my best friend just now. I will try to keep holding on. America is worth it. I mean, guess who her best friend is? I mean, please. Who else would it be but her husband? I mean, some of the contents of those text messages are shocking in just what they tell us about what Ginny Thomas might believe. So some of the text messages refer to this extreme false conspiracy theory that Trump had watermarked mail-in ballots so he could track potential fraud. It also refers to some speculation that Joe Biden and his family will be, you know, living in barges off of Guantanamo to face military tribunals for sedition. These are extreme conspiracy theories that 
have been propounded by, you know, groups and cults like QAnon. And these are apparently the theories in which, you know, a wife of the Supreme Court justice is immersed in. And I think it really strains credulity to think that she doesn't talk about these conspiracy theories at all. I mean, conspiracy theorists don't often keep all of their conspiracy theories to themselves. And it is deeply troubling that someone who was so apparently closely involved in the efforts to overturn the election and strategizing and how those efforts could reach the Supreme Court is the spouse of a Supreme Court justice. I think if we looked at another country and said, there is you know, a spouse of a Supreme Court justice engaged in something that looks like a coup, um, an attempted coup, we would rightfully be quite concerned. And again, I'm speaking with Leah Littman, who is an assistant professor of law at the University of Michigan, who teaches and writes on constitutional law, federal post-conviction review, and federal sentencing. She clerked for the Honorable Jeffrey Sutton of the United States Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit, and Justice Anthony Kennedy of the United States Supreme Court, and is now a regular contributor to the Take Care blog and the co-host and creator of Strict Scrutiny, a podcast about the U.S. Supreme Court. So, so far, there's been quite a a shock. There have been obviously defense from Kevin McCarthy, the House Minority Leader, and also from Mitch McConnell, the, the Senate Minority Leader as well. They have no problem with what she's done. But Senator Ron Wyden has said, Justice Thomas's conduct on the Supreme Court looks increasingly corrupt. Judges are obligated to recuse themselves when their participation in the case would create even the appearance of a conflict of interest. A person with an ounce of common sense could see that bar is met here. So what are the consequences or are there consequences? It's not clear at all what the consequences will be. I mean, obviously, the reputation of the court, um, the legitimacy of the court is going to take another grievous hit in light of what seems like an apparent conflict of interest and impropriety, you know, on behalf of a Supreme Court justice. But beyond that, we have no idea whether there will be any consequences. I don't think members of the Democratic Party are inclined to press hard on the Supreme Court. I think that the conservative legal movement and conservative legal commentariat have already circled the wagons around the Thomases. And that is an extremely dangerous situation where political polarization and the goal of using the Supreme Court to advance your policy objectives matters more than just basic ethical norms. Well, you mentioned that Virginia Thomas seems to be swayed or believe in these QAnon conspiracies. Uh, And you mentioned that the idea of, uh, in fact, I can read you the bit in the text. She said, Biden, crime family and ballot, fraud, co-conspirators, elected officials, bureaucrats, social media, censorship mongers, fake stream media reporters, etc., are being arrested and detained for ballot fraud right now and over the coming days and will be living on barges off Gitmo to face military tribunals for sedition. She also tweeted this uh, or agreed with this post from uh, Sidney Powell, which is the most horrible thing of all, which is this QAnon conspiracy theory that Alex Jones has been pushing and been sued about. The uh, 
theory that the Sandy Hook massacre was a false flag operation, and she, and she linked that to this uh, character from supposedly uh, a former State Department official turned right-wing commentator, Steve Pizernick. So this is out there in Lonely Land. I mean, she talked about the storm, which of course is what the QAnon people thought. But the point is that her husband was the only outlier, along with Samuel Alito, in believing that the Supreme Court should not have turned away the suit by the Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, and that on February of 2021, Justice Thomas called it baffling and inexplicable that his peers on the Supreme Court had voted against hearing election-related challenges by Trump and his allies. And as you mentioned earlier, he was the only one that dissented from the National Archives handing over Trump's records to the January 6th committee. So what more evidence do we need? I don't think there... We, we don't need any additional evidence to conclude that Justice Thomas should not be participating in any cases related to January 6th of the 2020 election. We don't need any additional evidence to conclude that he shouldn't have participated in the cases that he did participate in. Um, but I, I don't know that we have seen the last of the evidence about Ginny Thomas's involvement in extreme right-wing conspiracies, her involvement in efforts to overturn the election, um, or her involvement in cases in which her husband participated. You know, we have seen a slow trickle of news that just reveals more and more, whether it's her involvement with organizations that have regular business before the court, her presence at the January 6th rally on the ellipse that preceded the insurrection at the Capitol, and now this. And who is to say what will come next? We surely already have enough to conclude that what has happened has crossed more than an ethical line, but we have no idea what remains to be seen. So, as I mentioned earlier, Mitch McConnell and Kim McCarthy are coming to her defense and to also suggest that Justice Clarence Thomas should not recuse himself. So what kind of a battle do we expect there? I mean, who's going to make the case? Is that the Chief Justice's prerogative? I mean, how does this proceed? Because my understanding is that there has been discussions on the Supreme Court led by, I think, Elena Kagan, to come up with a code of ethics, but I don't believe that's those discussions have are complete. So start with that one, if you will, Leah. I mean, absolutely, the different justices on the court can try to do something, um, but it's not clear exactly what power they have. Um, you know, the chief justice, yes, he's the chief justice, but what is he going to do? You know, if he doesn't assign opinions to Justice Thomas, Justice Thomas can just write them himself. You know, the justices don't have a ton of authority over one another except through basically trying to convince them to act appropriately. So I don't think this solution is going to come from the court itself. So in other words, only Thomas can recuse himself. The others can suggest he does. I mean, how far yeah. can they go from suggestion to persuasion? But that's as far as they can take it? I, I, it's possible they can come up with some creative ways to try to force his hand, but I don't, I, I'm not clear what those would be. So, and beyond the Supreme Court, I mean, uh, in terms of the other branches of government, is there anything that can be done to impeach uh, a federal judge as a big deal? And it's usually to do with corruption. 
we've seen uh, Trump himself impeached twice, and he dodged a bullet twice. It seems a little unlikely, as surely. I mean, there may be some people talking about impeaching Clarence Thomas, but do you think that's a possibility? No, I think that's extremely unlikely. You know, we've only seen one Democratic senator say anything about what um, has already unfolded. So it's extremely unlikely that that is going to happen. Well, it's sort of sad in a way. I mean, when you you feel the passion and the conviction that she has, these people are completely delusional. But what is driving this? I mean, I understand in right-wing circles, there's this core belief and of course, the stop the steal lie has metastasized, and something like seventy to eighty percent of Republicans uh, don't think Biden's legitimate. So it's working; the belief system is working. But I'm curious to try and understand how it could be so deeply ingrained, and it and it seems to suggest to me, at least, that a lot of people like Virginia Thomas really don't see the Democrats as being legitimate. That. I think Somehow that's exactly not American. right. Is because that what's going on? Because they don't see them as legitimate, they can justify basically anything they do to prevent the Democrats from taking power. So this is uh, basically revealing a kind of a sickness in our polity here, isn't it? That these... Yes. And what do we do about it? I wish I knew. Um, you know, combating misinformation is certainly a big part of it, um, but it's hard to know exactly how to do that right now. And, of course, you've got not just Virginia Thomas with these crazy ideas and also, of course, she's championing this other lawyer, uh, Sidney Powell, uh, who herself is fighting to retain her law license. And she's been sanctioned by a federal judge in Michigan, you know, where you are, with up to $1.3 billion in liability from Dominion voting systems, uh, which sued her because she defamed them and made up all kinds of stories. It's very hard to knock these stories down. But you also have beyond Virginia Thomas and Sidney Powell and this clique of lawyers who got nowhere in the early stages of trying to overturn Biden's victory. It still lives on. As I mentioned, 70 percent, 80 percent of Republicans believe uh, that Trump won. Uh, and you've got you know news outlets like Fox News pumping it. So this is sort of a bit like what's happening in Russia, isn't it, with Putin? <laughs> I mean, are we that far gone as a society where lies, what's the old expression? A lie goes around the world before the truth has a chance to tie its shoelaces. I mean, we're not there yet, but I don't think it's a coincidence that many leaders are speaking about you know, the threats to democracy, not only from autocrats abroad, but autocrats at home. You know, we are not currently living in a universe where, or at least a, a country where people were able to successfully overturn the results of a popular election um, or prevent, you know, the opposing political party from obtaining political power. Um, but we are, I think, at risk of becoming that sort of country. Um, and it is very frightening to see. Well, Leah Littman, I thank you for joining us here today. Obviously, um, <laughs> there aren't any easy answers, but <laughs> this is shocking to see this belief system at the very top of our government. Somebody with such access and who married to a Supreme Court justice uh, who votes according to her peculiar ideas. And from what I can take away from our conversation, there's not a lot that can be done 
to change this. And, you know, they've got already, the Conservatives have got a six to three majority and they're absolutely sliming the nominee to replace Justice Breyer. Just in closing, do these, you know, Federalist judges that Leonard Leo handpicked, five out of six of the Conservatives, does Leonard Leo and company want nine out of nine? Is that what it comes down to? Um, perhaps, although they're getting an awful lot of what they want right now. I think what they might want are six Justice Thomases, Alito and Gorsuch, who thus far have not found, you know, any any case in which the Republican Party has asked for something that they were unwilling to give. So at what point do then do we see these people as political activists in robes? Um, you know, I think that is a question that can be answered with respect to, you know, different justices and their votes across several different cases. Um, and I worry that the examples of Justice Thomas, Justice Alito, and Justice Gorsuch create almost a impossibly high barrier um, to, you know, think that other justices are acting politically, given how extreme those three justices have been in their willingness to, um, you know, be inconsistent, reach out and vote for outcomes that have no basis in law. And the fact that other justices aren't as bad as them in, in that respect doesn't necessarily mean, you know, we have a, a moderate or institutionalist court. Well, Leah Littman, I thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Leah Littman, who's an assistant professor of law at the University of Michigan, who teaches and writes on constitutional law, federal post-conviction review, and federal sentencing. She clerked for the Honorable Jeffrey Sutton of the United States Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit, and for Justice Anthony Kennedy of the United States Supreme Court, and is now a regular contributor to the Take Care blog, and is the co-host and creator of Strict Scrutiny, a podcast about the United States Supreme Court. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past